Candidate Joe Biden on the campaign trail made four big promises, four pledges on which he told the American people to set their expectations for his presidency, to judge his performance. So he came into office with a very bold and very clear promise that he would return life to normalcy and defeat the virus, as he put it. Biden promised to do what Democrats failed to do after the Great Recession, and that is to get the economy moving again, to bring down unemployment, and to restore the economy. But he also just promised to help America take one giant step toward a more equitable society, an America that sort of works for everybody. You know, probably his clearest and biggest promise was to cut the nation's greenhouse gas emissions at least in half by the end of this decade. Now one year since his inauguration, those four crises remain central to his presidency. The fight against COVID, the state of the economy, the quest for racial equity, and the battle against a changing climate. So the question for us is simple. Are we ready? I believe we are. We must be. After one year in office, with the country still facing several historic crises simultaneously, Washington Post reporters set out to answer this question. What has Biden done about the four crises he pledged to address? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. So when Biden took office, he was facing the worst pandemic in a century. White House reporter Annie Linsky examined Biden's shift from vows to defeat the virus to acceptance that we might have to learn to live with it. He made a pretty concrete promise that the country would defeat this deadly virus in his inauguration speech. This is one of the reasons that he was elected to office, his promise to manage the virus better than his predecessor. A major reason why he won were voters believed that he would be able to do that. So he came into office with a very bold and very clear promise that he would return life to normalcy and defeat the virus, as he put it. Folks, I will take care of this. I will end this. I will make sure we have a plan. Defeating COVID is a critical piece of his presidency. I mean, there are people who will say, you know, the success or failure of his presidency relies on his ability to make good on this promise and manage the virus not only far better than his predecessor, but that puts the country back on the kind of secure footing that we were on before we'd ever heard of COVID. His record here has been mixed. I'm talking to a lot of people, public health experts, about this. They say that the White House response has been a bit of a patchwork. He did promise in the beginning that he would make vaccines widely available for no cost to Americans. And he has done that. He can rightfully point out that there were only a tiny percentage of Americans vaccinated when he walked into office. 100 million shots in 100 days. It was considered uh, ambitious. Some even suggested it was somewhat audacious. And that number has grown exponentially. We did it. Today, we hit 200 million shots. And that is a really important thing. And, and that is something that he and his administration deserves a lot of credit for, because it was a mammoth effort to get these vaccines out the door. Now, saying that, the uptake on these vaccines has really stalled. And that has thrown a wrench that's been bad for the country, it's been bad for the recovery, but it's also thrown a wrench in Biden's strategy for taking the country back to normalcy. 
the president's team put a lot of their eggs in the vaccine basket. That a major part of their strategy was that Americans, when given the opportunity to take these life-saving vaccines, would do so in big numbers. And the numbers are large, but they're not big enough to prevent the virus from continuing to spread in the country. And so that's been a problem. We're going to have full hospitals and needless deaths. So the single most important thing to determine your outcome in this pandemic is getting vaccinated. For one thing, the virus changed. The administration could not know exactly how the virus would mutate. Delta was such a surprise to the administration. I mean, you think back to July 4th, the president invited a thousand people for a July 4th kind of independence from the virus party at the White House. Pools and parks are opening up across the state. Families are heading down to spend Memorial Day weekend at Virginia Beach and all over the country. We've gone from pain and stagnation of a long, dark winter to an economy on the move growing faster than it has in nearly 40 years. Shortly after that party, the Delta variant began to infect Americans, and you saw cases just explode over the summer. You know, in several weeks to a month or so, it's going to be quite dominant. That's the sobering news. Fast forward a few months, again, they didn't really anticipate that Omicron would just be quite as contagious as it has proven to be. The U.S. set to begin another difficult year with thousands of Americans infected and thousands of others hospitalized with the virus. The other thing that's been a little out of their control and I think has been surprising to them has been the political pushback to public health recommendations. And so you do have a segment of the country that just will not take vaccines. And anytime Dr. Fauci says something, they're gonna do the absolute opposite of what he says. We are opposed to him. I think he should be in jail. And it is about elections. If the Republicans take over, if I win re-election, I'll subpoena all his records. And there's just been this extreme politicization of public health that I just don't think the Biden administration truly believed would take as firm of a hold as it has. Tens of millions have gotten sick. We've all experienced upheaval in our lives. But while COVID has been a tough adversary, we've shown that we're tougher. When Biden took over, we were looking at a prolonged economic slump along the lines of the Great Recession or the Great Depression. White House economics reporter Jeff Stein wrote about Biden's economic interventions that worked, but maybe a little too well. Biden promised to do what Democrats failed to do after the Great Recession, and that is to get the economy moving again, to bring down unemployment and to restore the economy to what economists call full employment, robust growth, people working again, businesses being created. That, in large measure, worked. Biden and the Democrats passed a $1.9 trillion economic stimulus relief plan in March of 2021 that dramatically increased the amount of demand in the economy, flooded it with cash, and led to a dramatic uptick in growth. The American Rescue Plan is working. America is getting vaccinated. Job creation is soaring. The economy is growing, and our country is on the move again. 
we are witnessing growth that really has been unprecedented in the last decade, two decades, of close to 7%, which no economist really thought was even feasible. And we're seeing a record number of job posting, jobs opening. We're seeing a mass phenomenon called great resignation as people are switching jobs and finding new opportunities in unprecedented numbers. And these are all trends that are the precise outcome of what the Biden administration was hoping for. This historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, uh, people who built the country a fighting chance. That's what the essence of it is. The administration seems to have been quite successful at addressing the economic challenges that they set out to at the beginning of the year. But now they're looking at failing to really address what Americans say is their top economic concern right now, which is inflation. And that's a very, very bad sign for the Biden administration, for the economy, and for millions of workers around the country. The Biden administration has spent the last several months wrestling with exactly how to deal with this inflationary surge that voters are so alarmed by. They've taken really an all-of-the-above approach, but many economists, particularly on the right, say there's very little you can do with supercharged demand at the levels that it is now. The best news for the Biden administration is that a lot of private sector forecasters are imagining that with the COVID relief efforts dwindling and sort of fading, and with um, the economy and, and supply chains coming back online and healing, that inflation will calm down next year to 3 or 4%. If we get that number, absent dramatic action from the Federal Reserve, there is a lot of reason for the Biden administration be optimistic. And if it doesn't, we'll probably see it in a bloodbath in the midterms for Democrats in 2022. And if it goes on for longer than that, it could severely damage the president's re-election bid in 2024. You know, nearly a century ago, Franklin Roosevelt pledged a new deal in a time of massive unemployment, uncertainty, and fear. Stricken by a disease, stricken by a virus, FDR insisted that he would recover and prevail, and he believed America could as well. And he did, and we can as well. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. When Biden took office, he was facing one of the most compelling calls for racial justice since the 1960s, and he made a bunch of promises. Cleve Woodson is a White House reporter for The Post. He examined the ways black voters have seen more symbolism than results from Biden in the fight for racial equity. You know, one of them was already fulfilled. He appointed a black woman as his vice president. He selected Kamala Harris. Here we stand, looking out in the Great Mall where Dr. King spoke of his dream. Here we stand, where 108 years ago, at another inaugural, thousands of protesters tried to block brave women marching for the right to vote. And today, we mark the swearing in of the first woman in American history elected to national office, Vice President Kamala Harris. 
but he also just promised to help America take one giant step toward a more equitable society that in in all manner of things from who sits on the Supreme Court to criminal justice reform to voting rights just an America that sort of works for everybody a cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us the dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. He's made significant progress on matters and issues of symbolism. When it comes to the face of the administration, the diversity of the administration, when it comes to the rhetoric that comes out of his own mouth, when it comes to all of these things that we look at and that we see. Their end game, to turn the will of the voters into a mere suggestion, something states can respect or ignore. Jim Crow 2.0 is about two insidious things, voter suppression and election subversion. It's no longer about who gets to vote. It's about making it harder to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote and whether your vote counts at all. But where he gets bad marks in his first year is actual sustained, enduring progress on things like voting rights, on things like criminal justice reform, on things that basically can't be overturned with a new administration or the stroke of a pen. I don't think that Biden has actually faced that many unexpected hurdles. I mean, they knew coming in that they had a tie in the Senate broken by Kamala Harris favoring them, a U.S. House that was in their favor and the White House. You know, I don't know if he saw Joe Manchin coming. I don't know if he saw Kirsten Cinema and the difficulties with sort of getting them on board about filibuster reform or things like that. The debate over the Senate 60 vote threshold shines a light on our broader challenges. There's no need for me to restate my long-standing support for the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation. A lot of the groundwork was laid even before Biden took office. And so I think with somebody with his experience, you know, nearly four decades in the Senate, you know, he really knew what he was working with coming into office. About complicated subjects like, can you get this done? I hope we can get this done. The honest-to-God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. If you talk to Biden's advisors, his, his closest advisors, they'll tell you that Biden was personally affected by the killing of George Floyd. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the vice president just referred to. There was systemic racism that's a stain on our nation's soul. His sense of racism or inherent racism or systemic racism, that his sense of justice was really shook. And so despite having really crystallized opinions over five decades in politics, I think there has been some evolution on the part of Joe Biden. When I spoke with Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's young daughter, she's a little tight, so I was kneeling down to talk to her so I could look her in the eye. She looked at me, she said, my daddy changed the world. Well, after the conviction of George Floyd's murderer, we can see how right she was if, if we have the courage to act as a Congress. Democrats, by and large, 
are powered by black voters, specifically black women. They, they resuscitated Biden's campaign in South Carolina, propelled him to a Super Tuesday lead, helped him get two Senate seats in Georgia. And so for Biden's presidency, dealing with these crises of racial equity are really about fulfilling his promises, fulfilling his party's promises too, to the Democratic base voters, to, to black people across the nation who basically were told or promised that if you put Democrats in power, if you put Biden in the White House, things will get better. And so it remains to be seen what that better looks like. How do you want to be remembered? The consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be in the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be in the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? He made a lot of big promises. I went back and looked at what the president, the new president, was saying a year ago. Brady Dennis, who reports on the environment, looked at how Biden's climate accomplishments have been historic, but likely don't go far enough. He talked about the big problems that the country is already wrestling with and that we've all seen play out again over the past year. Devastating wildfires out west, flooding in so many parts of the country, intense hurricanes, droughts, deadly heat waves. Folks. We're in a crisis. Just like we need to be a unified nation in response to COVID-19, we need a unified national response to climate change. We need to meet the moment with the urgency it demands, as we would during any national emergency. He talked about all that, and he promised to, to do a lot about it and to become a, a leader in the, in the world again as far as trying to move the nation away from fossil fuels, basically and cut our nation's greenhouse gas emissions, which are the second largest in the world behind China. And to do all that, he promised by creating jobs in a lot of places around the country and cleaning up communities that had suffered a lot of pollution over the years. Probably his clearest and biggest promise was to cut the nation's um, greenhouse gas emissions at least in half by the end of this decade, by 2030. It's a pretty ambitious goal and, and certainly kind of a sea change from the Trump administration, which, which really downplayed the threat of climate change. There's no question that President Biden has been the most climate-focused president in history. He has made this a cornerstone of what he's tried to do. We have tracked all, all his energy and environment policies, and it's pretty clear that even in the first year, he's targeted a lot of deregulatory actions that President Trump took. He's targeted more than half those in the first year alone. He has rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. He's tried to make the United States sort of a beacon for how to tackle climate change. To demonstrate to the world the United States is not only back at the table, but hopefully leading by the power of our example. The flip side of this is that the president doesn't get to make all the decisions here. The biggest push he can make is the Build Back Better Act, which, as most people know, is stuck in Congress right now. I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. That bill would include north of $500 billion of climate-related policies. That's everything from rebates for electric cars to tax credits for clean energy, more money for public transit, all sorts of things. And that is in the hands of Congress. He's facing a, a Supreme Court challenge that could really restrict how his administration going forward regulates emissions from the nation's power plants. 
And then he has the midterm elections coming and Republicans have not been keen on on climate legislation. I'm here to speak on behalf of the American people and how outraged we are at the policies of the Green New Deal, which are in the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion budget, because these policies are the most America-last policies. As a matter of fact, they do nothing but put China first. If either branch of Congress were to be led by Republicans after the midterms, it's going to just be that much harder for President Biden to do what he wants to do on climate change. So. A lot of his wish list is really in limbo. I think the president may be expected to be able to get through this Build Back Better legislation earlier. Certainly, the White House had hoped for that. And that is really a, hard to overstate how important that is for his climate goals. A lot of it really hinges on whether there's funding for it. But other things like all the regulatory policies as Gina McCarthy, who is the president's uh, top domestic climate advisor, told me just last week, so much time has been spent rolling back the rollbacks, is how she put it. And, and by that, she meant getting back to where things were pre-Trump. There's a lot at stake here, both for the president and I, I think for his legacy and, and, and for the country, frankly, and in some ways for the world. On one hand, the United States only accounts for 13 or 14 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. We are the second biggest emitter in the world, but it's a global problem and it has to have a global solution. On the other hand, the United States has an outsized influence in the, in the international community and it has gone forward under the Biden administration and stepped out there and said, we're going to be a leader. Please follow us. Please be ambitious as well. If the president isn't able to do that, if his policies don't get funded through Congress, if the Supreme Court hampers his ability to regulate the things he wants to regulate, if the midterm elections don't go his way, all of a sudden it could, it could look really hard to make those changes. But it also just frankly slows the transition that scientists are pretty clear has to happen if we want to slow down these, these impacts that we're seeing all over the country and this extreme weather. So there's a lot at stake for a lot of people and a lot of communities and certainly for President Biden's legacy in the next year or two. Biden faces, together, as he put it, the worst pandemic in over 100 years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the most compelling call for racial justice since the 1960s, and the undeniable realities and accelerating threats of climate change. Each of these crises have their own individual challenges, but the reality is that they're deeply intertwined in one historic moment for America. While there are four crises, I think that Almost everyone would say that one of those crises loomed larger than the other. When Biden first was inaugurated, he talked about getting the pandemic under control. He wanted to be the president that got us past this. These are four areas that he said that he was going to tackle proactively. COVID certainly spills into all of them. I think it's pretty clear at this point that the economic situation is very downstream from the COVID situation and the failure of the Biden administration, whether it's their fault or not, to prepare for and address and head off the Omicron surge clearly had economic repercussions. And the longer the supply chains go on, not just here, but across the world, the longer the economic situation is going to be a millstone around this presidency. Biden himself has framed this push on climate change, not just as an environmental issue or a future issue, but an issue about the economy and, and how he wants to put in place jobs of the future, jobs that will create employment and good wages. Historically, the communities that are most 
hard hit by climate change. It's the poor and minority communities of our country that have suffered the most from the, from the infrastructure that we have and from the sorts of power and other pollution that we have. The president has said he really wants to change that to, to help those communities, to bring jobs to those communities. And so I think they are related in very close ways because, because there is a lot of overlap. And so all of the other crises, while the administration continued to work on them, continued to sign executive orders, continued to, to, to do stuff on them, a lot of the people that were pushing for strident, quick, fast, powerful change were sort of told, hold your horses. We have to get this deadly pandemic that's killing hundreds of thousands of Americans under control. And I think that's led to a really a strong pressure point in the Democratic Party and politics now because... Everybody has been told to wait, sort of, or at least that, that, that we're not going to go as fast when it comes to their individual pet issues, some of which are very significant. And now the question is, as, as we sort of emerge from the pandemic, hopefully, maybe, right, as we emerge from the pandemic, what gets priority? What happens next? And does Biden have the political capital to, to get those things done? Thanks for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? For The Post's complete digital experience exploring the four crises that Biden faces, visit wapo.st slash Biden hyphen crises. That's wapo.st slash Biden hyphen crises. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.